0: Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're continuing our Tartan Talk series by having a conversation with Jeff Brower. Jeff has worked all over the place on golf courses of all levels. Jeff is not only an excellent storyteller, he's also an excellent writer, which is something that we discuss later in this podcast. Jeff also discusses what it was like going from a child growing up in Arlington Heights, Illinois to launching a golf course architecture firm at a young age in Arlington, Texas, his relationship with Dick Nugent and Ken Killian and what his thoughts are on some of today's design trends and philosophies. But before we get going with Jeff, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts including the work of golf course Superintendents, So we're glad that they're on board and we're glad that Jeff was able to take some time to join us. Well, Jeff, thanks for joining us. It's awesome to have you on the podcast. First thing I wanted to ask you is you grew up in Arlington Heights, Illinois, and your office now is in Arlington, Texas. How did you go from one to the other?
1: Yeah. Well, I thought golf course architecture, A to A would be a great, uh, great title. Might limit what kind of work I got, but, uh, You know, I mean, I started in Chicago. I was an apprentice with Killian and Nugent. You know, I actually fell in love with golf at age 12. My next-door neighbors were members of Bedina, my best friend, actually. So he would take me out there to play. and I just fell in love with the oak trees and the hills and the clubhouse and and everything. Golf and golf courses. I I remember there was a placemat there, and the the grill had the course layout on it. I took it home, you know, after the first and second round of golf and told my mom I was going to be a golf course architect, so. So, you know, kind of funny, or coincidentally, uh, you know, being in Chicago that that year, ASGCA moved their headquarters from Washington, D.C. to Chicago, and they hired Paul Fulmer as the executive director. My father saw that uh, in the business pages, uh, called up ASGCA, got all sorts of um, their books and pamphlets and whatever, and, you uh, know, I was just hooked, so. One of those had the list of architects. Killian and Nugent was in Palatine. The next uh, next suburb broke up the train tracks. Uh, they invited me in. They laid out a plan, you know, landscape architecture and some other courses. I followed it. They hired me. Uh, didn't really have the work for it, but I followed did everything they asked, so I guess they felt kind of guilty. Turned out to be great mentors. You know, worked uh, seven years there. Knew I wanted to start my own business, and I didn't want to compete against them. So we started looking in the phone books and uh, for southern cities, and Dallas was the only one that didn't have a golf course architect at the yellow pages. So it was kind of, honey, we're, we're going to Dallas.
0: Jeff, how tough would it be for a um, child now to take a similar path? I
1: wouldn't discourage them. Uh, a lot of people would, but, you know, when I was looking at all this in 1974, there was the oil embargo, there was the impeachment of uh, potentially of President Nixon, And the golf market was absolutely zero. So I remember the first day of work, I mused to myself, I wonder if I could finish my career as a golf course architect. So Dick Nugent had one of the all-time great quotes. He said, you know, it's been going strong for 500 years. I think it'll last another 50. And uh, it has. And I think the same thing would be true of any young person considering a career in in golf uh, now uh, or golf
0: architecture. For our listeners who aren't familiar, uh, explain a little bit about Dick Nugent and Ken Killian, who were they? What were their personalities like, and what did they mean to the game of golf?
1: Well, Dick and Ken had both apprenticed under Robert Bruce Harris, who was probably the founder of the Chicago School, uh, other architects who came out of his office and then went on to their own careers, you know, Roger and Larry Packard, uh, Dave Gill, uh, Dick Phelps. Uh, and he was famous for meticulous plans at large scale, grading plans, irrigation, figuring everything out in advance. And uh, so Kelly and Nugent brought that with them when they started their own firm. And, of course, I brought that with me uh, starting my own firm. plans still have value. I know right now it's it's uh, currently fashionable to just think you're guys sitting on a dozer and making all the decisions in the field, but it still is quicker to move a pencil or a mouse pad than it is to start thinking about things when you're in the bulldozer phase. So uh, good plans. Um one thing I didn't think they were strong at, because they weren't golfers actually, was you know, how do good players play the game. So early on in my career, I, I partnered up on various projects with different tour pros uh, who all gave me a better sense of that side of the, the design equation.
0: What was it like working with a tour pro for the first time? That's at least something that a lot of people don't get to do. What was it like partnering up with somebody that maybe you'd watched on TV and followed the golf career of?
1: Well, uh, the first was Jim Colbert. I actually did one project with Ken and Dick before they split up and uh, before I went on my own, and then he he decided to use me. Uh, The great thing about Jim was he was animated. I mean, he could articulate exactly what it was the players do, where some of the other tour pros feel it. You know, they couldn't really explain it in any kind of technical sense. So that was invaluable to me. And uh, later on, I also worked with Nota Begay, both of those guys were grinders. I mean they instead of a highly talented guy, they felt like they had to hit all the shots to compete and so they taught me well, you know how it was golfers thought about you know, hitting the shots, which is basically take advantage of everything you can to you know to fashion the least risk uh, highest probability chance for success on any given shot and that's really in, influenced my design
0: so what was it like moving to the Dallas? Fort Worth Metroplex, what was it like at that time, and what was the golf scene like, and how how did someone from Illinois adjust to picking up and uh, starting an office in an unfamiliar place?
1: Well, I always said the best part about it was I was too young and stupid to figure I might fail. Uh, So that's always an advantage when you're going into business for yourself. Uh, in, In Texas at that time, was very provincial. I mean, I really didn't do a lot of work early in my career here in Dallas or here in Texas. Uh, and it kind of set a pattern for the rest of my career where I do some of it here, but I do, you know, at least half of it, you know, other places. Um, at the time, there was a muni- you know, municipal golf course, boom, going on in Dallas, and, and a and Nugent that designed uh, Ditto Golf Course, which was just uh, re-envisioned as Texas Rangers Golf Club. Um, and I just saw that all the cities were getting ready to build them. Uh, so I figured that would be a good thing to to go and I figured it'd be a good thing to be in the public course market. So I have ended up doing a baker's dozen around Dallas here among my 50 courses, uh, mostly in the public sector.
0: What is it like working in that sector? What are some of the opportunities and what are some of the the ways that maybe it, it stretches you differently than working for a single owner or a family or a private club?
1: What really changed You know, really about the mid-80s when I started my business was, you know, the Munis went from being, you know, the poor boy thing, doing everything absolutely as cheap as possible, you know, to try to create that upscale country club for a day. So we created a lot of good golf courses. Now people are thinking maybe we made them a little too tough and the, the old Muni model, you know, might come back. Uh, but we're just fortunate to, to start my business at that time and uh, have a chance to do some pretty nice courses. I mean, certainly not tournament quality, but certainly not what the traditional muni would be. Uh, now we're kind of going back to that. Every renovation, you know, got to save every dollar you possibly can because you know golf is not a great business anymore.
0: You made a, a decision that's a little bit different than what maybe most golf course architects do. Is you decided to primarily do most of your work in the, the public sector why you made that decision and how has that helped you over the years?
1: Well, golf is, you know, no doubt has been moving since I've been in the business 30-something years, uh, you know, towards more public courses, I like think two-thirds are public and one-third are private. You know, I felt like the guys like Jack Nicklaus were always going to have the advantage on you know, some of those big-name projects. So basically, you know, you have more customers to shoot at. Um, and, you know, some guys would like their legacy to be a number one course or a or U.S. Open course, but, you know, through history, I'm I'm proud to be in that whole, you know, cluster of golf course architects who make golf affordable and, and pleasant for the everyday golfer. I mean, Like I say, we played Medina Country Club, you know, then I went to, uh, my dad couldn't afford to join, so I played public courses, and I could see the difference. So, you know, it's, it's, A challenge, but it's, you know, really very satisfying to give the public golfer something close to country club levels.
0: I believe Chicago's got more public golf courses than any market in the country. Were there any places that you and your dad played that influenced you?
1: Well, not particularly in design. I mean, like I say, the Medina thing was good. Uh, I worked at Glencoe Golf Club, a very good public course uh, on the North Shore a couple summers for maintenance. That was part of the Killian and Nugent plan. You know, get some landscape construction, get some golf course maintenance. Um, but, you know, I, I remember even looking at Medina. It was sort of like, you know, I read all these articles. I mean, at the time, Herbert Warren Wynn came out with an architecture article at Golf Digest, and there were a few others. And even Medina was bunker left, bunker right. So yeah, I read all these things about strategy, and then I say, but I don't see it. You know, I just don't see what the deal is. There's no strategy to bunker left, bunker right.
0: How many different bunker combinations are there on a golf course? How many different bu- bunker combinations have you done?
1: Well, you know, that's the interesting part. Um, for all the mantra of, you know, let the land dictate and so forth, uh, you know, I find me and I think most architects tend to get repetitive. And so what I try to do is actually get a hip-pocket list of things, like on T-Shots, if you, if you think about it, of course, most people want to hit a driver. And, you know, you can ask them to carry something, stay short of something, or miss something on, a, on the lateral side. And there's a lot of different combinations, but basically – um, you get down to that, there's maybe 14 combinations. And then if you change, let's say, water to sand or sand to grass, you know, 30 or something tee shot combinations, and probably, you know, a similar number. So, in striving for variety, I mean, it sounds counterintuitive, but I actually started with a list of the, of the different ways we can set up tee shots, different ways we can set up approach shots to the green.
0: Jeff, in your mind, how important are well designed and well built bunkers to a golf course? Well, they're traditional.
1: Uh, I've only done uh, two courses with no sand bunkers and all grass bunkers, and you could do it. And and the the various grass features could certainly challenge golfers, but it's such a visual game. And I think, you know, the TV generation and now the phone and device generation, we're visually stimulated. And the bunkers uh, are golf's, you know, best way to, to visually engage the golfer. So, Uh, They're important that way, and again, over the last decade as the golf boom has worn off, I mean, making them practical with the bunker liners and reducing the slopes and keeping the drainage out of them and things like that is uh, just really increased in importance because now you hear some superintendents say they spend more on maintaining bunkers than they do on greens, and uh, that's just crazy. I mean, greens should be your focus. Uh, So anyway, we spent a lot of money. The interesting thing is, uh, you know, over the... Thirty-something years, we keep striving for more perfection, and we keep making it more complicated. But then somehow the the, the goalpost moves back a little bit more, and it's still not enough. <laughs> and we, you know, we keep going forward. We keep going forward, striving for more perfection. And um, there are times when I wish that uh, you know golfers would just accept
0: a little rugged around the edges. What was your reaction when you first heard a superintendent tell you that he or she spending more time on the bunkers than the greens? Have you heard that in your travels? And what's your reaction when, when you do hear that?
1: Uh, well, again, I, it's obvious that if we're going to keep the cost of golf down, they can't do that. Years ago, I was doing a country club renovation and a public course in, in the same town, and uh, so the public guy raked twice a week and didn't edge bunkers all the time and was spending sixty or 70000 but the country club guy had the direction that if a guest comes out, it needs to be perfect all seven days of the week, and he was spending a couple hundred thousand, you know, uh, five times as much, so... Um, it's it's really the frequency that you know whether or not you're going to accept one day with a, a little bit of crusty sand or a, you know, a little bit of weeds around the edges. Of course, that's what the Navy got started the whole you know edge, rough edge bunkers and, and longer grass going, you know, in an attempt to uh, eliminate some of the edge maintenance. That seems to take a lot of the time.
0: Are bunkers a regional thing? I mean, you you work all over the country. Is how you would design and implement a bunker different in let's say texas compared to minnesota or does everybody want the same thing i guess what i'm asking is is there's some regional flair in bunker design
1: well yes and no i mean i think everyone is influenced by you know what the current hot courses are you know the stream songs and the pacific dunes and that rugged look along the ocean um the differences really get to be you know texas has got a lot more wind and they got a lot more rain uh, which tends to, you know, the practical bunker here is flatter and, and deeper, set below the grade if you can do it, uh, just to keep the, more sand in the bunker and, and you know, from blowing out because it gets to be a big expense. You know, you go to, there's even Chicago, you know, the Windy City moniker was really for the politicians as much as the, the actual weather. Uh, and, you know, you can do different things. But, uh, again, we try to tune the style basically to the environmental conditions. When we redid La Costa with Damien Pascuzzo, you know, you got a low rainfall climate, uh, then you can do the steeper slopes and the capes and bays because they're not going to be washed down You know, every three or four days or two weeks or whatever.
0: You live in a pretty windy place. I mean, Dallas is a, a very windy city. How does wind factor into your design decisions? Well, this
1: One of the things that, you know, Colbert taught me, uh, among other pros, but he was the most animated. He says, Jeff, you know, if the wind's blowing left and i got a left lie and the green is angled to the left, I mean, the parts, I'm going to hit a hook. Uh, You you have to factor in what the wind is going to do to the golf ball. Again, a guy like Jim Colbert or any good player, grinder, is going to use that, you know, to shape a shot, you know, for the best success. Uh, The problem we have here in Texas uh, is that, you know, in the winter – you can get them from the from the north, and in the summer you get them from the south. Um, and there are greens here around town, designed by some good architects that don't take into account the winter winds. I mean, if you got to cross a pond in a downwind in the winter, you know the ball is just going to release and roll to the back of the green. So just to be able to hold the green, those greens have to be deeper uh, just to account for the winter winds. You know, up in Chicago and uh, most of the Midwest, there is some version of west. You know, southwest in the summer northwest in the winter but again you can count on it going somewhere to the west and and that makes design a little bit easier.
0: Jeff let's talk about some things that are short. First off short courses when did you start realizing that they would be of value how early in your career did you start working on them and how much um, work with them do you do now?
1: I haven't done too many myself the realization of the light bulb went on. Again, Damien Pascuza and I were co-designing La Costa a few years back, and he had done a 12-hole course up at Monarch uh, Dunes. And we went to see it, think it would play the main one, but then we go, and this 12-hole course, mostly par threes, a few par fours, had kind a of line out the door. It was a Tuesday afternoon, and, and it was booked. Uh, people may be coming home from work a little early or lived in the subdivision or whatever. And, uh, you know, nobody seemed to know the difference. We were playing, uh, you know, they had the big cup and the small cup and we were playing call your shot to which hole, what kind of shots you had to hit. We had more chip ins. I mean, we were laughing so hard and having so much fun. The Ranger came by to see how much we had been drinking and we, we hadn't, yeah. <laughs> there was no drinking at all. <laughs> so, uh, that was, that course was just so much fun. And, you know, that's the other thing when I play with my wife, Sandy, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of days we just quit after 12 holes. If she's tired or we're not playing well, you know, I don't know. If you could buck tradition all the time, I think you know, 12 holes would be one way to get you under a four-hour round and, and keep you engaged through the whole round. So uh, I will propose them. I haven't had a lot of owners go for that yet, but uh, I'm glad to see it's a, an increasing trend.
0: What about short par fours? Where do you stand on those?
1: Well, I've been told that I do some interesting ones, and uh, – they're easy to conceptualize, uh, you know, golfers. You know, that's the other side. As I get older, you know, the better I used to play. And, you know, I, the design just seems to focus on the long, hard par 4s to stop, stop some tour pro. But you, know, you go out and play golf in America, you know, with real golfers, and you find out that the 360, 370s, you know, that's the hole that's fun for those guys. Because you know, it's fun if you can hit a green with a driver and an iron kind of like the pros. I mean, the distance differential has got to be so much that, uh, you know, you used to think forward tees could kind of get you close, uh, but now the distance differential is so much. I mean, we really, that's kind of the genesis of the forward tee movement. You know, get seniors, get women, you know, get the average player uh, down to where he can hit greens in regulation.
0: Has that been a shift? Do those players have more say in decisions than they used to?
1: You know, I hope so. And then when you do go in and do a, a master plan or whatever, you try to get a broad cross-section of golfers. Uh, and the public side, you know, usually you know, You may have one symbolic meeting, uh, but really the parks district or whoever's in charge is making the decisions. I think just architects and, and uh, golf managers are just now realizing that we we did spend a couple decades designing for pro tournaments that were never going to come you know, to this particular course. And now you're designing around 80 to 90 percent of average golfers who really pay the bills, use the course every day, and that's where we started in golf, and um, you know that's where we are at now. I hope. And let's say that the, there are a lot of great golf courses built in the last 20 years. Uh, right now, the trend is remodeling them to reduce the bunkers, you know, look at some of the data where shots land, and shorten the tees, and, and make them playable for the you know the everyday golfer.
0: Each and every project is special to a golf course architect, but which ones have really stood out in your mind? Which ones have been really highly personal to you, Jeff, and kind of tell the story of what you've done and what you're going to do in the future?
1: I've always liked to travel. and One place in particular I found that I really enjoy is uh, Minnesota, and I've done four big projects up there, a couple other minor ones and studies, uh, and they're all highly ranked in the public course rankings be good because it was 105 degrees here in dallas they called up and said you know we need you to come up here and look at something I mean i was on the plane you know by the afternoon uh get up there in the cooler temperatures uh and then you know here in texas you know tumbleweed is a specimen tree and the the, the north woods up there are just so beautiful so i did two courses for giants Ridge for the state of minnesota i did the wilderness at fortune bay for the uh, boys fort band of chippewa and then the just last year, we reopened Superior National, which is a 1990 um, Don Herford design, and, uh, but it was kind of designed. It needed to be a resort because nobody lives in that area, and they kind of designed it as a municipal course, so we sort of upgraded that to resort standards, but didn't spend a lot of money doing it. Fortunately, Don was uh, good at routing holes, and we didn't need to do any major surgery on that. And, Rebuilding in place is always less expensive than doing a total reroute of a golf
0: course. How much golf enthusiasm is there in Minnesota? I believe it's got the highest participation rate in the country. People like to go outside and do things. Do you sense that when you're an architect? Do you, do you sense that you're in a place where people really love the game of golf?
1: Yes, you can really feel it up there in Wisconsin. And the other thing you feel is that you, you do see more women playing golf up there. One time somebody told me that 40% of the handicaps in Minnesota are actually female. Um, and, they, and that in turn influences the design. against Superior National, you know, we tried to lengthen the back tees, but we also tried to shorten the forward tees because they were getting close to 50% of their play was women, you know, on vacation. So uh, we tried to give everybody a pleasant experience up there. It's not only the you know the natural beauty, but then you know it is golf. You gotta you have fun playing it.
0: Jeff, do you do some things different on a resort course where maybe people are coming in and playing it once or twice a year compared to a daily fee or a private course where people are playing it quite frequently?
1: I think so. You know, a private club, if you come across a hole where certain features are blind, uh, you know, obviously the golfer's not blind the second time and they learn, you, know, you figure they're playing that course most of the time. In any kind of public design, I usually like to treat every golfer as if they're playing the first time and usually try to lay it out in front of them. No hidden hazards, uh, maybe fewer subtle subtleties. Uh, you know, you talked about Killian and Nugent earlier. Dick Nugent was not a fan of subtlety uh, that you see in some of the old designs. Again, TV generation, uh, look at the visuals and try to impress them that way. But, but it's just not fair to have, you know, hit it over the hill and find there's a pond at the bottom. So we do try to lay the golf holes out, and and the bunkering maybe is arranged uh, slightly more for the visuals. I mean, every bunker should serve a few different functions, but uh, certainly we're more uh, aware of the visual needs of a resort, because, you know, you go out of town, you want to play something you haven't seen in your home course, so we, we like to make it a little more visually spectacular.
0: In addition to being a talented golf course architect, you're also an excellent writer, Explain well, you what, would know, right? <laughs> what uh, it's been like to write columns over the years, and how ha- how is um, effectively writing an important skill set for anybody in this industry?
1: Well, I think it's really important, especially it's important in sales. You know, they, they say, and if you've ever hired anyone, you know, you start going through the resumes and you check out the easy ones that are bad in grammar or bad in spelling. And so when we put in a big proposal for a public course, you know they got a hundred of them or even ten of them, uh, and it's just so easy to throw out and, and not take seriously one that you know is bad dramatically. Uh, the other side is it's easy to throw one out that's long and boring. So the great thing for me in writing the column for golf course industry all those years was, you know, learning to write under a word deadline. And then when I write my proposals, I try to use some of the same style, a little easier flowing style instead of technical jargon, and then just shorten it up to bullet points as much as you can, uh, hoping that those uh, making the selection committee will pick me for the interview just uh, just out of appreciation that I didn't waste their time.
0: Any favorite columns from over the years?
1: Your predecessor, like Mike Zawacki, you know, said, you know, most of the time you want to write a technical thing, you know, real world problems the superintendents face. But uh, over the years, I, I somehow got behind deadline and I put in a real goofy one about golf course architects not getting any respect, you know, told the readers to read it in the voice of Rodney Dangerfield. And uh, that one and a few others where you guys let me, you know, express a little more humor. Uh, but those are always memorable to me, and I got more comments on those than maybe the standard issue column over the
0: years too. How tough is it for a golf course architect to get a lot of respect? I think maybe a lot of people have heard of some of the big names or former tour pros, but how tough is it for you and most of the other ASGCA members to get the respect that you feel like you deserve?
1: Well, it is always difficult, and uh, you know, the, there's not much cost barrier as a you know, barrier to entry to this business, but. Yeah, uh, you, you do have to be, you know, somewhat lucky as well as talented and, and being able to convince people. Uh, I was lucky that a few months after I moved here to Dallas, you know, haven't been a top guy at killing and Nugent. You know, got over to a country club and the guy in charge selecting architects had just started his own business and realized that you know there are people like that, the second in command who got no, you know, no credit. Uh, so you need to get a little fortunate like that and. Um, the other hard part is you always have to have that balance between, well, do whatever you want, you know, you're the client, and, uh, you know, being, you know, maybe the slightly more arrogant architect that says, you know, I know what's best. Trust me. Um, and it, it, so it's, part of it's in the presentation. You have to carry yourself with respect and confidence uh, and, you know, in that one time, one course at a time. Uh, Art Hills told me something once. He goes, the best thing to do is just do good work. Eventually that word
0: gets out. Last thing here, Jeff, what is 2019 going to be like for you? Well, it'll be a good year. We've just signed a local remodel here,
1: Iron Horse, which is a 1980s Dick Phelps design. But like so many other courses in the floodplain, they didn't originally have enough money to, to work with the floods. And it's gotten worse over the years. Uh, So we have that one big project signed up. We have a couple of small ones already in the hopper, and that's kind of how I've always worked the office. One or two big projects gets it, and then the the other one's still in the master plans and the consulting visits. Plus we have a few exciting ones uh, overseas in the hopper that I'm knocking on wood. You never know some of these communist countries. Uh, Today it's a go, and tomorrow it's a no-go. So if one of those comes through, it will be a, a banner year.
0: Well, Jeff, thanks for taking time to join us. And also, thanks for everything that you've done for golf course industry. Jeff wrote his last regular column for our May issue, and it was wonderful. But we also would like to say that, Jeff, we we hope that you continue writing for us. We're going to try to do it on a, a freelance basis where you have something that you're really passionate about that you're going to go attack. So thanks again for everything, and we look forward to catching up with you again soon.
1: All right. Well, it's been a pleasure working with you. Uh, You're always a pretty gentle editor, which I appreciate, and try to let the writing style come through. And like I say, the readers haven't seen the last of me I do enjoy it, and uh, there's some topics, I think, yet to be addressed, even after how many years we've written the column. So uh, I'll be back in the pages.